Well, good morning. It's uh, good to have been with you for these uh, three Sundays, uh, looking at this uh, story that hopefully you're beginning to see that uh, the name that we've often thought of it as the story of the prodigal son uh, doesn't really quite do it justice. So we're uh, going to read this morning from verse 25. So if you want to turn to Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 25. And we're going to read the part of the story that is sometimes missed out because uh, very often when we get to verse 24 and uh, the younger son has returned home and the father welcomes him and throws a celebration for him, we we often stop there. But Jesus didn't stop there and uh, he goes on and says, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found." When you think about the two brothers in this story, at first glance, they seem to be very different. The younger brother is someone who wants to break all the rules. He doesn't want to abide by convention. And uh, at least in terms of what the older brother tells us about himself, he's the opposite. He's very conventional. Uh, He plays by the rules. He does exactly what he's told. He keeps the rules. The younger brother is adventurous. He travels, gets as far away from home as he possibly can. Uh, the, older, the older brother, on the other hand, he's quite content. Well, maybe not content, but he stays at home. He's committed to just staying at home, working on the farm. The younger brother is reckless and irresponsible. He goes off and manages to blow a third of the family fortune, presumably in a fairly short space of time. And the older brother is a picture of duty. If someone has to stay and look after the, local bu- the family business, he's the man who's going to do it, while the younger son is far away uh, wasting his inheritance. And the younger son's behavior, when we think about it, is, is shocking. Uh, not only shocking to us, but perhaps in ways that we've beg- begun to see over the past couple of Sunday mornings. For the audience that Jesus was speaking to in the first place, his behavior would have been even more shocking. And on the other hand, the older son, well, he's just a picture of conformity. He's the dutiful one, plays by the rules, as we said. He's a toe-the-line conformist. Chalk and cheese, really. At least that's what you think when you look at it superficially. But what I want us to see this morning is that when we go below the surface we discover that the hardworking, dutiful, 
conscientious older brother actually has a lot in common with his younger brother. And that actually makes this part of the story somewhat disturbing for many of us. Because, if I put it very simply, you begin to realize that if, if you and I seem to be quite different from all of the notorious sinners that we can identify and name uh, anywhere from this part of the Lisburn Road all the way out to Lisburn and further afield, if we can identify all of those and we think to ourselves that we are quite different from they are, actually, this final part of the story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 shows that while we may look different from them on the outside, there's a possibility that on the inside we're really not very different at all. These two brothers actually have a lot in common. Now, we've been saying through these uh, Sundays that we've spent this time together, we've been saying that when we read this story that we call the prodigal son, it's very important that we do not stop in verse 24. Now, if you did stop in verse 24, you've still got a wonderful, you've still got a wonderful story. And it would underline the point that Jesus really wants to make in, in, in what is a series of pictures that he paints in Luke chapter 15. Um, the, the picture of the, the shepherd who loses one sheep out of a hundred. And he finds the sheep, and when he finds it, there's a celebration. And Jesus says, in just the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need any repentance. And then he paints the picture of the woman who loses one coin out of ten. And similarly, she's not content to say, well, I've got nine, that's plenty. She goes and she hunts and she looks for the one that she's lost until she finds it. When she finds it, she rejoices and invites other people to enjoy the celebration. In the same way, there's joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents, more than over 99 sinners uh, who, who need no repentance. And as I said, maybe it was last week or the week before, when you come to verse 24, and, and the part in the story where the younger brother has come home, and the father has welcomed him with great joy, and there is a celebration to which no doubt the neighbors were invited, you almost expect that Jesus would say something very similar. There's more joy in heaven over one younger brother who comes home than over 99 righteous older brothers who do not need to repent. You expect that he's going to say that, but he doesn't. He goes on and he tells us this story about the older brother. He puts the spotlight on the older brother. Now, it's funny that this older brother, it, it seems to me that, that he's very often been left out of our retelling of the story. I think that's maybe changed uh, in, in recent years. People like Tim Keller have talked about him. People like Kenneth Bailey have written about him and so on. Uh, but I think for many of us, as we've grown up with this story, Generally speaking, the older brother has been left out. And more than that, it seems to me that sometimes when you, when you think about the older brother, your initial response is to feel sorry for him. Well, it's not fair, is it? I mean, there he is. He's spent all of that time working diligently on the family farm while the younger brother's off, blowing the fortune. The younger brother comes back. He gets a party thrown for him. And the poor older brother, he's, he's never even had a young goat killed, and a few of his friends invited around to celebrate. And there he is, slaving away, keeping himself right, taking a stand in principle, and he never seems to get anything in return. It's not fair, is it? And that's what we think. Well, maybe our picture will change a little bit. Now, one of the things that I've wanted, wanted us to see is that 
Each of the three characters in the story tells us something about grace. When we think about the, older, the, the younger son, uh, when we think about him as we thought about him in the first part of the story, we realize that grace reaches farther than we sometimes dare to hope. We get ourselves into terrible messes. We do terrible things that we regret. And the message of this is that it is possible to come home and the grace of God will welcome us home. Grace reaches farther than we sometimes dare to hope. And last week, as we thought about the Father, we realized that grace costs more than we sometimes think. There was a cost for the Father. It wasn't just simply a, a question of saying, well, none of, none of what my son has done really matters. I'm not bothered by it. Of course he can come back. That Father had to absorb the pain of rejection. And by running to meet his younger son as he came back from the faraway place in disgrace, by running like that, the Father was, was shedding his own dignity in order to cover the shame of his son. Grace costs us more than we sometimes think, and it's impossible for us to think adequately of the grace of God that is extended to us without thinking of the cost, where the Son of God, who knew no sin, was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And here's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see that for some people, grace is harder to accept than we sometimes imagine. It's a little bit like, it's a little bit like that C.S. Lewis statement that I mentioned last week where he said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a wonderful idea until they have something to forgive. And when we think about grace, this, this wonderful, accepting, uh, restorative love of God that has come to us through Jesus Christ, it is a wonderful thing. We sing about it, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, and so on and so on and so on. And yet, sometimes, Grace is harder to accept than we might imagine. It's going to be important for us to think about this older son. Jesus has, has put the spotlight on him. He has not simply finished at verse 24. And the older son is going to teach us something about the challenge that it is at times to accept grace or even to extend it to other people. And so I want to make three observations about him. I want to suggest that there actually are three ways in which the older brother is really quite like his younger brother. Remember, superficially, they're very different, but in three ways, they're really quite similar. And the first way is that the older brother, just like the younger brother, was estranged from his father. Now, that's very clear at the end of the story, isn't it? At the end of the story, the older brother is outside. There's a party going on inside. There's great feasting that's going on. There's great celebration. There's dancing. There's music. All of that is happening, and the older brother is outside. There's a distance between him and his father. He's actually arguing with his father. And when you see that, you realize that you don't actually have to travel to a faraway place and squander the family fortune in order to be alienated from your father. He's still on the farm, but there's a huge gap between him and his father. There is no warmth between him and his father. There may even be hints at the beginning of the story that all is not well, that the, the, the dynamic in this family is not particularly good. Um, 
when you think of what the younger son does at the beginning, de demanding his share of the inheritance while his father is, is still very much alive, why did the older brother not step in at that point? Why did he not recognize that there was this, this gap between the, the younger brother and the father? Why did he not say to his younger brother, do you know, really you ought to be more respectful of your father than that? Why do you want to tear up the family? Why do you want to break the family apart in this way? Why have you decided on this course of action? Can we not talk about this? Can we not be reconciled in some way? He doesn't do any of that. He seems to be quite content to let the younger brother go. He seems to be quite content to take his share because the father divides up the, the, the fortune between the two. Uh, obviously, the, the older brother ends up looking after his part of the fortune on, on behalf of the father because he, because he stays at home. But you wonder if there's something maybe amiss in the family right at the beginning. And if it's hinted at in the beginning, it's this hostile confrontation between the older brother and his father uh, when, the, when the celebration is going on. It's this hostile celebration that shows the break in relationship between them. Look at what he says. He says to him, Look, these many years I have served you, Never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. At least when the younger brother left home, asked for his fortune and left home, he had the courtesy to address his father as father. You see that at the beginning of the story. He says it in verse 12, Father, give me the share of property. When the older brother speaks to his father, he doesn't even call him father. He just says, look, I've slaved away for you all of these years. Now, he's obviously angry, but there is no evidence of any warmth of relationship with his father. Indeed, someone has suggested that he actually sounds more like a union shop steward in a dispute with management about wages than he does a son who loves his father. And the sobering lesson is that there are actually two ways to be estranged from God. You can be obviously far away from God, and everybody knows because of the way you live that you're far away from God. You can actually be far away from God on the inside, even though on the outside, as far as anybody else can tell, you are the picture of duty and responsibility. Billy Graham's grandson, Tullian Chavidjian, says that it's possible to be lost through unrighteous badness, and it's also possible to be lost through self-righteous goodness. Most of us have no problem in pointing out the lostness of the younger brothers who are wasting everything in a, in a reckless lifestyle. Most of us have no difficulty in recognizing that. What's harder for us to spot is the religious sinner who's lost in his own self-righteousness. You know, the ones who never get drunk, who never drive above the speed limit, who never miss a Sunday service, they never miss their evening prayers, who would never countenance the idea of doing anything, even with a hint of moral doubt in it. And it's not that there's anything wrong with any of those things except this. Our goodness 
can have a way of turning us into self-righteous older brothers whose pride estranges us from God. Notice the second thing. Like his younger brother, the older brother needed grace, and he was offered it. Now, remember grace, definition of it, it's unconditional kindness given to an undeserving recipient at an uncomfortable cost. Now, in terms of the younger son, that, it, it's obvious that he needed grace, and it's obvious that he received it. In spite of everything that he had done, in spite of the way he had rejected his father, in spite of the dishonor that he had brought on the family, in spite of the stories about wild, wantonly sinful living that had filtered back to the home village, in spite of all of those things, the younger brother received acceptance and restoration. His father abandoned his own dignity, hitched up his, own, his, his robes, and ran down the road to meet his son. But you notice in the story that the father does not leave the house once. The father leaves the house twice. It's obvious with the, with the younger son, because he leaves and he runs. But he also leaves the house in the final part of the story when he goes outside to speak to his, to his, uh, his older son. Verse 28, his father came out and entreated him. Notice he didn't go out to accuse him. He didn't go out to humiliate him. He went out to entreat him. He went out to plead with him, to plead with him to come in. And what begins to emerge here is that it's not just the sinful and the unrighteous, the obviously unrighteous who need grace or who are offered grace, but it's also the religious and the self-righteous who need, who need grace and who are offered grace. And I, I wondered, you know, as I've, as I've thought about this story, I've wondered which of the two boys at the end of the day hurt the father more? I mean, obviously the younger son hurt the father, hurt his father by, by what he did. But didn't the, didn't the older brother hurt his father by standing outside and standing in judgment on, on his father's gracious behavior and saying, I don't agree with you. I'm not going to come in. Would that not equally have insulted the father? Would that not equally have, have hurt the father? And it seems to me that sometimes it can actually be easier to offer grace to a, a shame-filled sinner than it is to offer grace to, say, a self-righteous legalist. You know, your attitude to a self-righteous legalist is, well, if they want to stay outside the party, that's their loss. But the Father actually extends grace to both of them. Now, I don't think that the older brother had any idea that he actually needed grace. Uh, I think he was so full of his own self-righteousness that he couldn't see it. And actually, grace was a major problem for him. His view of life was, basically, if you do your duty, you gain your reward. And what his father had done in showing grace to the disgraceful brother was actually scandalous. And as Kenneth Bailey says, for some types of people, grace is not only amazing, it is also infuriating. There's a stumbling block with grace. And that's why the gospel, the, the news of, of the free grace of God through Jesus, can be offensive to religious people because they believe that their faithfulness to their church or their general goodness or whatever 
that'll all be weighed up at the end on the scales of God's justice, and they would rather not think that they need Jesus to save them. In fact, they don't really like the idea of Jesus saving anybody, especially people with piercings and tattoos and all those kinds of things. They don't like the idea that those people might be accepted while they are not after all of, all of their dutiful living. There's a stumbling block that comes with grace. And it seems to me that there's a problem here because many of us who start off fully aware of our need for grace, we start off as younger brothers, younger brothers and sisters. We know that we need grace. And we've come in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus. But over time, a very subtle change takes place. See, younger brothers and sisters grow up and they become older brothers and sisters. And I think one of, the, one of the ways this story, I think, is a challenge is that there are some of us, and maybe many of us here in this room this morning, and we've started out as younger brothers, and, and we know about the grace of God, and we've accepted the grace of God for ourselves. But, you know, as time has gone by, we've, we've started to, to think, well, do you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm really not so bad. There's really quite a lot of good things about me. And we begin to morph into older brothers and sisters. It's not that we deny the doctrine of grace or anything like that, but it's just that we are less aware of our need of it. And we're more reliant on our own righteousness. And I want to suggest there are a number of signs. I'm going to dwell on this for a moment or two because I think this is important. If it's not important to you, it's important to me. But it seems to me there's a number of signs that this is happening. I'm going to give you eight. And when you see these things happening in your life, I want you to have a, an honest examination of your own heart this morning. When you see these, these things beginning to happen and more and more of them are, are occurring in your life, these are signs that you are in danger of morphing into an older brother or sister. For example, you struggle to forgive other people thought about forgiveness a little bit last week, and we acknowledge that forgiveness can be an extremely difficult thing. There's some things that are very difficult to forgive, and there can be all kinds of complexities with the idea of forgiveness. But I want us to set that aside for a moment. I'm not saying it's not important, but I want us to set it aside for a moment, and I want to say this, that wherever you see a basic, repeated stubbornness and resistance to forgive, it is a sign that you have not fully grasped the grace of God as you should. If you're one of those people who always struggles to forgive, it may be that you've not fully understood the forgiveness that God has extended to you. Here's a second one. A sign of losing your grip on grace or becoming a little bit like an older brother is the need to be right and to be seen to be right. Do you know that way that when you're having an argument or a debate with somebody, maybe your wife or your husband, you've got to have the final word because you're right and you cannot let that other person, whoever it is in the discussion or even if it's a group of people, you cannot let them off with the impression that maybe you're less than right. You know, you're only 90% right. You're 100% right. 
And everybody has to know that you're 100% right. I was in a gift shop yesterday, and uh, you know, all of these kind of little things that you know, hang on doors and, and so on, quite a lot of wedding, wedding related. Gemma, you can relax because they're, I'm assuming she's down there somewhere. Yes, she is. You can relax. I didn't buy you this. But uh, uh, one, of them, one of them said, uh, when I married Mr. Wright, I didn't realize his first name was always. <laughs> um, that's a contradiction of grace. It's funny, but it's a contradiction of grace. You know, these, some of these things maybe are, are you know, a little, a little humorous, but seriously, if you always have to be right and always have to be seen to be right, it may be that you've not fully understood grace. And the other side of that is that you never want to admit that you've been wrong on something. Even when you have been wrong and you know it, you cannot bring yourself to admit that you've been wrong. Do you ever hear someone makes a statement like this? They say, well, I'm sorry if you were offended by what I said. I mean, that is often what passes for an apology. Certainly in the public domain, that is often what passes for an apology. That's as good as it gets. And some of us are probably a bit like that. I'm sorry if you were offended by what I said. You know, implication being, if you were offended by what I said, that's your problem, it's not mine. But I'm sorry if you are. It's very different, actually, from saying something like this. I need you to forgive me because I was wrong in the way that I spoke to you. I hope you can see the difference between those two things. Because if you can't see the difference between those two things, you, you have not fully grasped the grace of God. When we have grasped the grace of God and we realize that we are undeserving recipients of God's kindness that has come to us at great cost, when we realize that that's what we have received, then we would be less anxious about needing to prove that we're right all the time. And it will not be difficult for us to humble ourselves and admit those times when we've been wrong. And I think somewhere connected with those two is the temptation to compare ourselves with other people. If the comparison is favorable, we end up feeling proud about ourselves. And if the, if the comparison is unfavorable, well, it leads to jealousy and it leads to resentment. And I think one of the signs, again, is that uh, if your life is filled with resentment, that may well be an indicator that you've not understood the grace of God. You look at the older brother in this story, and you look at the, the, the seething resentment that he experiences when he says to his father, look at everything that I have done as I have slaved away for you, and you never even gave me a young goat, and then this, this son of yours, can't even call him his brother, he comes back, and, and you kill the fattened calf for him. And he's a mass of seething anger and resentment. And I think people who are struggling to really accept the grace of God deeply will be people who will be filled with resentment, filled with anger, probably anxiety as well. We're angry because the world's not the way we want it to be. And we find it difficult to live like that. Here's another one. We feel the need to be everybody's traffic warden. I don't know if there are any traffic wardens in here today. I, you know, I'm sure they're, they're more than welcome. And I'm sure 
<clears throat> I'm sure that traffic wardens are, you know, morally upright, fine people. But, you know, you think about their job and, well, I mean, the ultimate goal of it is good, right? Because, you know, to keep, keep our streets clear of people who park illegally and make it difficult to drive around and all that kind of stuff. And make sure that everybody gets a fair crack of, of using the parking spaces. There's a positive goal. There's a, there's a good goal. If they're functioning right, you know, the streets will be, you know, traffic will be moving clearly and freely and all that kind of thing. But, but there's something terribly negative about being a traffic warden. I mean, I don't know how they, I don't know if they operate on a commission basis. Maybe they do. But if, you know, you imagine, you know, a traffic warden gets home and his wife says, so how did it go today? Oh, it was really, really good today. 50. You know, what? You know, 50 cars parked on, on lines, you know, or 50 people who'd, who'd, who'd stayed longer than they had paid for. And his, his, the whole success or failure of his day depends on finding people who are breaking the rules. Some of us are like that. Spiritual traffic wardens. Do you know there's a website called nitpickers.com? Seriously? Uh, how do I know this? Well, there is. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but what it does is it allows people to, to write in when they have spotted mistakes on, uh, movie, in movies and, and television programs. You know, so, for example, let's, ima let's imagine, I'm making this up, but let's imagine you've got a, you know, you've got a, a movie about, uh, you know, say, World War II, and there's a fighter pilot, and he's wearing Ray-Ban sunglasses, but the problem is that somebody has noticed this and, and realizes that that particular, brand, that particular model of Ray-Ban sunglasses was only, only began to be manufactured in 1972, which was actually quite a number of years after World War II, so we couldn't possibly have been wearing those particular Ray-Bans, so there's a, there's a mistake in the film, right? You get, you get that? There's a website full of that kind of, well, that kind of stuff. And again, I, I, I say it, there, there are some of us, in that, and that's how we go through life. Spiritual nitpickers. Spiritual traffic wardens. And if we're like that, it's another sign that we have not fully understood grace and the freedom that comes from it. Our spiritual life is much more about keeping the rules and checking off lists and ticking boxes than it is about a warm relationship with God. And frankly, we may not even be sure that God loves us. One of the Puritan writers said that the greatest unkindness you can do to the Father is not to believe that He loves you. I posted these on Facebook this morning, and a friend commented and said that there were a couple um, that uh, had particularly um, got to her. And she said at the end of, the, of her post, she said, so I actually thought that I had fully uh, grasped grace. And it made me think, uh, maybe there's a ninth and it is when you think you have fully grasped grace. It's a sign that you haven't. If you see these things in your life, it's a sign that you're becoming an older brother or an older sister. And it is something that I think wounds the heart of the Father, just as his heart is wounded by those who spit in his face and reject him and get as far away as they possibly can. Both the older brother and the younger brother needed grace. And there's one final thing. Like his younger brother, he had to choose, sorry, 
but he had to choose whether he was going to come home. Both of the brothers had to choose whether to come home. The younger brother made his decision in a pigsty. That's the big decision that we probably focus on when we read this story and think about the story where Jesus says he came to himself and he worked out that he'd be better off at home. But the older brother also had a decision that he needed to make. He wasn't in a pigsty. He wasn't far away. He was just outside in the family's field. But he still had a decision to make about whether he would go into the house. And did you notice how the story ends? If you go to the very end of the story, verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive, and he was lost and is found. And then it says in my Bible, the parable of the dishonest manager, chapter 16. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And you think, what, wait a minute, what happened? Did the older brother, did he go in or not? Did his father manage to persuade him? Or, or did he just turn on his heel and, and head out somewhere, some other part of the, the family property? Did he, did he stay away? Jesus doesn't tell us. And I think the reason Jesus does not give us the ending of the story is because he wants those who hear the story to decide how they will write the ending. Very particularly, it's the Pharisees and the scribes of verse 2. That's the context of the story. Jesus has told the story in such a pointed way. We've now seen the punchline. He's told the story in this pointed way so that the older brothers, who are the Pharisees and the scribes, who are grumbling that Jesus is welcoming the younger brothers, who are the tax collectors and sinners, those people are going to have to make a decision about how they're going to write the ending of the story. And as I wrap this up, let me say this. We too need to write our ending to the story. There are three characters in the story, and there are three, at least three main characters in the story, and I think that each of, us show, each of them shows us a way in which we can respond to the grace of God. And actually, we will respond in one of these three ways. There will be grace receivers, people like the younger son who receives a robe, a ring, sandals, and a feast. He doesn't deserve it. He knows that he doesn't deserve it. But that is grace. The father has absorbed the cost and has extended grace. And what the younger son has to do is receive it. And you know, all of us this morning have, have the opportunity to respond to the message of the grace of God as grace receivers. Some of us maybe for the very first time. Some of us who've heard the gospel many, many times. And maybe this morning is your opportunity to say, Do you know, I'm convinced. I don't understand it. I don't deserve it. But I'm going to come home. Maybe there's some of you, and, and you've got far away, and, and this morning is your opportunity to receive grace and to demonstrate that you've received by, by coming back home, coming back to God and receiving that welcome. But every one of us needs to be a grace receiver. Jerry Bridges says, on your good days, you're never so good that you don't need the grace of God, and on your bad days, you're never so bad that the grace of God cannot reach you. That's how we need to live. 
as constant grace receivers. Then there are people who are grace givers. That's the Father, isn't it? And I think that a healthy spiritual life will see us make a transition, not from being younger brothers and sisters, we never stop being those really, do we? Because we always need to receive grace. But we make a transition and we become the Father in the story because we extend grace, we give it to other people. That grace which is unconditional love given to an undeserving recipient at an uncomfortable cost. And I think that one of the key ways that you will know that someone has received grace, has, has become a grace receiver, and has grown as a grace receiver is because they will extend grace to others. Let me be so bold as to say this. There may be someone here in this room this morning, and there is someone maybe in your family, maybe it's someone else that you've fallen out with. You haven't spoken to them, maybe for several years. There's someone else, and maybe it's not as dramatic as that, but it's, it's just a, a coldness that has grown up. Maybe it's in a marriage, and there's a coldness that has grown up because your spouse did something that hurt you, they wronged you, they've turned out not to be the person that you thought you had married, and you have allowed a coldness to, to, to envelop your heart. And part of your response this morning is going to become, is going to be that you become a grace giver. You extend grace to that other person. And maybe it means a phone call when you go home at lunchtime. We need to become grace givers. The third way to re respond to this is, of course, that we can reject it. Like the older brother. I think he rejects it. He, he clearly rejects it for himself as far as the story goes. I, did he go in? Who knows? Did the Pharisees and the scribes go in? Well, no, they didn't. And there are people who reject it for themselves, but they also reject it for other people. Which makes me think that, in some ways, the worst thing we can do is to receive it for ourselves, but to reject it for other people, to refuse to give it to other people. And I think that's the anomalous situation that we find ourselves in at times, is that we're happy to receive grace for ourselves. We're happy to be forgiven by God. We're happy to be forgiven by other people. But relationally, we're very slow to offer it to others. And I think one of the great ironies, and I think it is, it is, it is, a, it is a very pertinent thing for the evangelical church in Northern Ireland, I think that one of the great ironies is that Christians who are the most capable when it comes to understanding and articulating the theology of grace can be so poor at demonstrating it. I think that might be one of the greatest travesties of the evangelical church in Northern Ireland, to be so theologically sound when it comes to the grace alone, faith alone, and so on, and yet often to present a face publicly, whether it's in one-on-one -on -one relations or whether it's in the wider public per, uh, uh, perceptions, to be so apparently graceless. And you wonder how many younger brothers and sisters would love to come home, but they just don't know how they would cope.
with the older brothers and sisters who are already there. And with that, we finish. You need to write the ending of the story. What are you? Are you a grace receiver? Are you a grace giver? Are you a grace rejecter? The story of which you're ending.